On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone deserves to feel connected. That's why Cox has high-speed internet to fit any budget. For real. Learn more at cox.com slash ACP. Non-transferable, one per household. Application and eligibility decisions are made by the FCC. Other restrictions apply. Action Park Media. You're listening to The Dossier, presented by Metro by T-Mobile. Director Brad Furman has worked in Hollywood for close to 25 years. Some of his career highlights include directing The Lincoln Lawyer with Matthew McConaughey and Marissa Tomei. The Infiltrator, starring Brian Cranston, John Leguizamo, and Diane Kruger. And finally, the film we are discussing today, City of Lies, starring Johnny Depp and Forrest Whitaker. The movie is based on Randall Sullivan's book, Labyrinth who you heard from in a previous episode. City of Lies is scheduled for a theatrical release on March 19th and VOD in April. We are joined by Brad's producing partner, Jess First, who also produced The Infiltrator and City of Lies. We sat down for a wide-ranging conversation about how the film came together, the importance to adhering to the facts of the homicide investigation, and the balance of storytelling as it relates to stories grounded in real events. So the, the first question, I think, just to set the, the table, obviously there was a book that was written by Randall Sullivan called Labyrinth, and it was circulating around Hollywood. Sylvester Stallone, I think, had rights to it at some point. Leonardo DiCaprio had rights to it at some point. Besides all of the drama that went on behind the scenes, why did you, when it, when it was all said and done, decide, I want to make this film? I think personally for me, there was a lot of reasons. Biggie and Tupac were immensely influential and instrumental in my life. Tupac in particular, I was a freshman in college at Emory University before I transferred to NYU. And I saw Homestone magazine, a little picture, it must have been three inches, of Pac with his bandana ties backwards on his head and his big eyes. And, you know, I don't know why. I was drawn to him. I was curious about him. I was, who is this guy? I never saw anybody wear a bandana that way. I mean, these things may appear silly to people, but there's all different things in our lives that attract ourselves to others. And in this particular instance, I was really drawn to him. And as a result of that, that was the beginning of my exploration into Tupac, his music, interviews of him at 19, speaking about the White House and the world and how the White House should take you know, all the homeless people and move them in there. And he just had a really unique point of view on the world. I later learned that Afeni Shakur was a Black Panther. Um, she was pregnant with Pac in jail. And I was just fascinated and consumed. In the 90s, you know, you may remember we went to the traveling party Blow Pop. Like every three weeks on a Thursday, they would move to a different place. And one of the times I was there, I don't know if you remember, Biggie performed live. Nobody knew who he was. I later figured out who it was, and he was unbelievable. You know, that music, uh, Puff Big, that whole world uh, became pervasive of the culture of being in New York and on the streets of New York as a student at NYU and thereafter um, in the 90s. And that, that, that unique rise in hip-hop. And obviously the horrific sort of political landscape that was created between, you know, East and West Coast and Iggy representing the East and Pop later representing the West. Um, ultimately, the, you know, I say political from the landscape of it was just this, I think, ultimately some type of marketing ploy. And they politicized this whole thing that inevitably ended up getting these kids killed. But for me, all of these things collectively made me a fan 
maybe somebody who absolutely loved these figures. And I feel that we lose perspective with our icons, our heroes, with people we're fans of, of their humanity. And these are two men that lost their lives. So there's a great quote from Quincy Jones about Tupac that I think in summation is all of the reasons why I want to dive into this story and, and fight for justice. The tragedy of Tupac is that his untimely passing is representative of too many young black men in this country. If we had lost Oprah Winfrey at 25, we would have lost the relatively unknown local market TV anchorwoman. If we had lost Malcolm X at 25, we would have lost a hustler named Detroit Red. And if I had left the world at 25, we would have lost a big band trumpet player and aspiring composer, just a sliver of my eventual life potential. Obviously, that is Quincy Jones. Because of my early infatuation with Pac and having lost him you know, X amount of years later, I always felt his life potential was cut short, as was Biggie's. And to think or to find out that in any way, shape, or form that the death of Christopher Wallace had anything to do with the Los Angeles Police Department corruption, an LAPD cover-up, um, all of these things that unfolded from, you know, Shug's connection to these off-duty cops, the intertwining between Shug, Death Row, and I just, to me, it was unbelievable. It was unfathomable, something I struggled to wrap my head around at that time. So it was such an honor to have the opportunity to sort of pull back the curtain and try to present the facts as the facts and present you know, fight for justice and, and let the world make a decision. I felt in my mind that's what Oliver Stone attempted to do with JFK. And in a way, I tried my best, you know, <laughs> not so sure I made JFK, but I tried my best to strive to make my version of today's JFK. These figures were that prominent um, in my life and I think many others. So um, we tried to stick to the facts. And and that is was my next question is, you know, filmmakers – have a choice when they're presented with uh, true stories or life rights stories or biopic stories where, you know, a lot of filmmakers will make the argument, well, I'm not, I don't necessarily need to stick to representative facts or, or, you know, some of the events in their lives that, that I have this creative freedom. You seemed in the conversations that we've always had and what you tried to do in the film was to really stick to some of the hardcore facts and some of the hardcore evidence, almost maybe to fall. So why did you make that decision? Oh, when I realized the book was about 11, 12 years old, I remember talking to you, talking to our partner and producer, Jess First, um, who's here with us today. I remember feeling very much like we had to research the case from the ground up. It would be irresponsible to just take everything that Randall did at face value and just put it into the world. That, that, that theory may not have held water. It's just what I felt in my heart, that I could backstop, backcheck everything that Randall had done, plus go further so that our research was up to date. One of the things I found to be astonishing was as we started to research people's larger current theories on what happened to Parker, what happened to Biggie, what happened in these murders, you realize that whoever was in the marketplace last, whoever spent just enough money to spin their ideas out there, that was basically what the public clung to. It's sort of how, very much how I feel about Greg Kading. He had some standing as an officer in the LAPD. He was put on the case, and I think he's monetized it wonderfully. Although I thought those theories in my research and in my due diligence, they didn't hold water. And I thought Russell Poole's work did hold water. They were rock solid. And ultimately, as we you know, show in our story and movie, and as is in Randall's book, he was pushed out of the force. And that, that always is fascinating for me, that this man dotted every I, crossed every T, and he was pushed out. So the key word in all of this, and I, I feel this way about any story dealing with true life figures and answer to your question is responsibility. My name, your name, Jess's name is on this film, and we have a responsibility to the real lives of these humans that lived, that existed, that inspired us. That's why I started by explaining the impact that Pac and, Pac and Biggie had on me personally. 
I think there's a responsibility to them, their lives, the work they've left behind, their inspiration and their families that are still living. And to do that, I sticking to the facts was crucial because if we just want to make entertainment, we're ultimately, we just thereby fabricate everything, then our theory, which is married to Russell Poole's theory, which is married to Randall's theory and all this hard work, you could just poke holes in it and just pull it apart. And the idea of the movie was to get people to question where things were currently at, to get them to see the facts in a new light, to use Johnny Depp and Forrest Whitaker as huge movie stars, as vessels to carry the information. I thought that was something that had never been done. To me, that was the explosive marketing way in, because unfortunately, you need to market the movies. You take the vessel of a Depp, you take the vessel of a Whitaker, and you put this information with them, and then you marry it to the truth, and then you carry that word responsibility on the way through. And that was the singular goal. You know, when you do a movie with movie stars, it kind of, in a sense, if it's successful, erases everything to date that was put out there, right? Because of the power of filmmaking and the power of movies. And that gets to my next point. You know, Randall built Labyrinth around the journey, basically, of one man and, and Russell Poole. And I think, Brad, you made a decision early on in casting of Johnny Depp. And where in your head did you say, man, I think I think that's the guy to play Russell Poole? I, I don't think it was an obvious choice. Obviously, he's a great actor, but it wasn't, I wouldn't feel an obvious route to go. So what was the thought process collectively behind it? Well, when you're making any movie that's of a substantial price, the typical finance system, especially if you don't have a domestic distribution in place, is that you get the particular value of an actor and then you sell the international value of them. You basically pre-finance your film. So the process, which you know, many people are not doing, what we're doing every day don't know is you're, there's only a limited list of actors, male and female, who have particular international value. So that list is not as big as you would think. And it's a very limiting process. And, and unfortunately, those actors are receiving all of the offers. So they have the pick of the litter. And, you know, the reality on these movies is you could be sitting for an attorney just going through the cycle of those actors. And eventually you get through them and, you know, it doesn't work out. It doesn't work out. Um, and I spoke to the woman who was involved in the financing of the movie. Know that, you know, she presented that list to me. And for me, I felt Johnny, first of a dream to work with, somebody I, I grew up watching, someone who is uniquely fascinating on film. You just can't stop watching him, um, whether he's playing roles that are eccentric or not eccentric. He's just truly an artist, and I think he evokes that in his humanity and how he performs. I wanted to bring a depth and humanity to Russell Poole. Um, I felt that one of my favorite roles of Johnny was Donnie Brasco playing in law enforcement. I thought years later to bring Johnny back to a movie similar to law enforcement could be fun and inspiring for audiences. I thought also in my heart and opinion, it was time for Johnny to get back to playing a very grounded, real, authentic, raw human being. Um, I know in theory he did that in Black Mass and did it wonderfully, but there was a prosthetics involved. And in one of my first conversations with him, I said, look, I, I want to move away from the prosthetics. I understand it's something you've had tremendous success with, but to create fabric of the raw feeling environment of the movie and evoke the humanity we want to evoke in Russ Poole, I want to avoid all of that. And he was completely supportive and really game for that um, because there were two versions of Russ, older and younger. Um, and that, you know, that's a challenge for any actor. And Johnny was really down for that. But in my heart, I did something I've never done which was probably a little risky and a little silly, but there's a long history of 12 years, Don, of you having brought the book to me and us never being able to get the rights and then eventually fighting to get the rights and ending up on the movie in a unique way. Um, but in that, I remember I, I went back to Miriam Siegel, you know, who was the producer and, and, and arranged the financing, and I said the only person I want to make the movie with is Johnny Depp. That is the singular only person I want to make the movie with. And, you know, if he had said no, I don't know what we had. But there was a calculation in my head and heart that Johnny was the guy. And thankfully, um, Stephen Duders, who worked with him, read the script, really loved it. 
uh, Christian Contreras wrote a great script that made the blacklist. And as a result of that, uh, we got the meeting. But it was it was a unique marriage of his um, his heart, his soul, his artistry, his childlike nature, his eccentricity. I felt that was an interesting version of Russ Poole. And as I mentioned, bringing him back to law enforcement in a fun way for Johnny um, would be exciting. So that's the sort of collectively how we ended up there. And I and I'd say we got really lucky. I think he's brilliant, and uh, I, don't, I don't take credit for those things. I always give it all to the actors. Yeah, and what what which what? Well, Johnny is a big music guy, right? And I don't know how many people know that he plays in a band. What were your conversations with him about the legacy of Biggie? Was he someone who listened to his music? Was he someone who had met him before? Was there any sort of connection outside of you know him wanting to do this role as it relates to Biggie's legacy and his story? It's actually really interesting because the, the, the relationship between director and actor is about trust. And in this particular instance, the reality for, you know, how this evolved when we first met, our first meeting, usually you meet with an actor. If you're lucky, you get an hour, maybe two. Johnny and I met for nine and a half hours. And a large part of that was the two of us just geeking out on our love for music. And I remember sitting on his floor in this really decadent, very cool office that he had. Uh, in West Hollywood, and I had my computer out, and I was playing him all these tracks, um, many that he knew, many that he didn't know, um, rap, hip-hop, classic rock. We were just connecting on music, earning and building each other's trust. Um, he had tremendous familiarity with Biggie, with Tupac, with all the music. He's a lover of all music, so it was an easy conversation. I think it was large in part why he wanted to play Russ Poole, pay homage to that character, pay homage to the life of Biggie and the inspiration that Biggie had even given him. Um, I think Johnny was very dialed into the music side of this, and you know, obviously he's in Hollywood Vampires, has been in other bands, makes his own music. That was one of the most fortuitous things this journey because due to Johnny's studio, due to Johnny's love of music, uh, due to my interest in producing music and working hand-in-hand with Alberto Boss and Chris Hazian, um, we we all went to Johnny's studio and made so much of this music. And as a result of that, Johnny foundationally was incredibly important in that. Um, and it was really amazing. I, I don't know if it's an interesting tidbit for you, but conversely, when I made Lincoln Lawyer, my way into the movie was, you know, through Lawrence Mason's character plays the driver, Earl, and... I had a whole list of 90s hip-hop and some R&B that I wanted to infuse through Earl's character because I wanted Earl to teach Mickey Holler the streets. And similarly, I went with McConaughey for my first meeting, and that just wasn't his world at all. That And, and by the way, Matthew really took to it. He started signing his emails, you know, uh, DSTT, don't sweat the technique. I mean, and that went on for quite some time. That's much body, the connection between Earl, Earl teaching Mickey the streets and all those kind of things. So, you know, that was a completely, I just bring that up because it's the converse of the experience with Johnny. And it's sure. not right or wrong. That's just Matthew's sort of history. And, you know, I, I always found to be really intriguing. This is a question for both you and then for Jess, because I know she was there for the majority of this. The second main character in this film, uh, played by Forrest Whitaker, is really sort of an investigative journalist. And listen, if we're all being honest with ourselves, I think this part of the movie was always a struggle of, of the role of this character. Was it loosely based on Randall? What was the, the journey of this investigative journalist? So talk a little bit about Forrest Whitaker playing this role, Brad, and then secondarily to that, Jess, the idea of the kind of struggle of making this work in the script in a way that felt organic to a story where you're trying to stay as close as possible to the facts. What's interesting, typically the ideal way you develop a project is you get the rights to something or have the rights, and then you work from the ground up to build it. Without going off too much on a tangent, that's not really how this ended up. Christian Contreras, who worked with the three of us in The Infiltrator, was separately hired to write the script and did a brilliant job and and weaved a web that I don't think many people could have woven. So, you know, tremendous due credit to him. Unfortunately, one of my constructive criticisms of the screenplay and Christian, you know, did disagree because it wasn't something he had done was the translation from script to screen. 
Um, I felt that's what was lacking. So one, one of the many, many jobs on this movie, because it was such an undertaking, was to figure out how to get this screenplay, which was wonderful, to translate to a movie. Um, and there were many, many facets of that. I had quite a love affair with Randall Sullivan when, you know, Jess and I were invited to Portland. Uh, not only was Portland just welcoming and an amazing place and inspiring, but, you know, Randall sort of seeing it through his lens and, and learning about Randall, his life personally and professionally, his relationship with Russ Poole, all of those things collectively. Um, I think it's my clear understanding uh, from talking to Christian and just historically Christian was trying to find a way into this narrative and the way in that made sense was ultimately foundationally to use uh, Randall Sullivan. I think ultimately, and I was not involved in this process, um, I think they felt that due to the nature of the subject matter, uh, due to the best way to tell the story, they began to fictionalize that character um, and then somewhere in that process decided to make him African-American. Um, so there all of a sudden you have this relationship between black and white. Surely from the outside in, it, it looked and appeared to be interesting, intriguing, and, and potentially could do something that could elevate the narrative um, and this relationship. I struggled with that because that was a fictional element for me that was so deeply woven into the movie by the time it got into my hands. The unraveling of it, you know, that's a part of thinking. If, if you're not building it from the ground up, there are certain things that you sort of have to eat, and then it becomes your job as a director to make them work. This was oddly one of those things where I had a responsibility uh, to make it work and not undermine the more important responsibility of truth of the narrative and what we were really trying to say. Um, and, and there were different versions of that. Uh, so, you know, sitting with Forrest, I, I obviously, obviously a tremendous human being, has tremendous gravitas as an actor. I thought he could bring the depth in humanity. Um, and Johnny and him had worked together in Platoon, so there was a prior relationship there of them wanting to work together. Um, of this character. Uh, there was always an instinct, a want, a desire to do more with Forrest's character to sort of his plight as a black man and the experience of these things. Uh, born out of that is the scene where he's arrested on the street, um, you know, wrongfully arrested um, and, and, you know, not, not, not treated appropriately, uh, you know, due to this inherent racism that exists. So there's elements of that in the script, but I always personally felt, I'm always very brutal about these things, that, that we never really tapped into the voice fully of that particular character. And it was a struggle, struggle for me personally through the film. So I think when you're making narrative, it, it's like a sculpture, the editorial, and you have to really carve the sculpture to get it to where you want. And in the carving of this narrative, we started to do was carve more into what the movie was really about, which is the unveiling of the corruption of the Los Angeles Police Department and these marriage to, you know, Thoreau and Chuck Knight and the corruption of these individuals and Rampart and all those other things. Um, and that becomes the sculpture within which we create it. But in my head and heart, in an ideal world, which is not one we live in, especially not in filmmaking, there was a version of this movie where we, even in a more complex way, dove into the relationship between black and white. But yeah, probably if I had developed this from the start, I don't know, I probably would have had much more hesitancy to, you know, turn that character fictionally to something that he wasn't. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I'm very proud that we were made a movie that we can stand behind from a factual sense, but more proud and honored, as I said, from the beginning to tell a story with such deep responsibility and such gravitas because it's a story that needed to be told. Immerse yourself in the fascinating tale of Song of Solomon by the legendary Pulitzer Prize winning author, Toni Morrison, a mesmerizing coming of age masterpiece that has captivated readers around the world. Follow the protagonist, Milkman Dead, who was born shortly after a neighborhood eccentric hurled himself off a roof in a vain attempt at flight. For the rest of his life, Milkman 2 will be trying to fly. As Morrison follows Milkman on a quest to uncover his roots and himself in his Rust Belt hometown to the place of his family's origins, she introduces an entire cast of strivers and seeresses, liars, and assassins, the inhabitants of a fully realized black world. As the New Yorker put it, Morrison moves easily in and out of the lives and thoughts of her characters, 
luxuriating in the diversity of circumstances and personality. Whether you're a seasoned reader or new to Toni Morrison, Song of Solomon is a must-read that will ignite your imagination and leave you wanting to read more Morrison. Song of Solomon, a timeless tale that will stay with you long after you've turned its final page. Available now at TonyMorrison.com and wherever books are sold. All right, so life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to 100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So maybe you need to get your kids something special or you and the wife need a scintillating night out every once in a while at least. So download Earn In Today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in the dossier under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com forward slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. I guess the only thing I would add to sort of the evolution of the role of the character of Darius Jack Jackson, which is played by Forrest Whitaker in the movie, which is a... um, lightly fictionalized role because there was not an existing reporter in the way that we we chose to tell the story. Movies are sort of these living, breathing, constantly evolving beings that start maybe from a book, maybe from an idea, move into a screenplay, then become something that you're constantly making and changing in production, and finally massively changing possibly all the way through the day that it goes to somebody's Uh, streaming or into a theater or whatever it is. So what we found with the character of Jack Jackson, um, we had a lot of lofty goals for him, especially because the role of the media in the cover-up is a real, although smaller, aspect to what happened um, to the Wallace family and and why to this day the, the murder remains technically unsolved. But that being said, we, we wanted to portray how that, how that has contributed and an aspect of a lot of the things that I had spoken about, which is sort of the today, the five years ago and continuing to this day, um, assault on journalism, assault on truth, the importance of separation of church and state between journalists and their journalistic integrity and who's funding them and what agenda they're serving. And the idea that if these organizations are serving each other, then they're not serving their purpose, which is to serve the people. And these were a lot of the goals we were trying to sit on the character of Jeff Jackson's shoulders. And we found um, when we pulled it all the way through and got into production and then eventually into edit, and we had to keep refining and crafting and figuring out what the story was, while those things are, are monumental, they, they weren't exactly central to the story we were telling here. And when they were put into contrast with the main sort of glaring, grotesque, painful truth of what the movie is about, which is the injustices perpetrated against the Wallace family by the Los Angeles Police Department in murdering their son, their father, their husband, and then robbing them of the justice that they are owed to this day, it just... It, it didn't have the space it needed. We didn't have the space we needed in a film to also tackle a lot of the journalistic aspects of this story and beyond. And that that character and that plot line got a bit smaller, um, which is, you know, the, the main aspects of the film deserve every single frame and every piece of airtime that we can possibly give them. And sort of that's how that character ended up, how it exists in the current cut of the film. 
Yeah, I mean, you you almost could make an argument that there's another there's another movie to be made about the L.A. Times coverage of the Los Angeles Police Department as it relates to this and Rampart and some of the other scandals, because uh, it's 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 staggering the the amount of of corruption that that went on and just sheer uh, malfeasance I, I, is the only word that comes to mind. Um, the, the next, I mean, yeah. if it, if it, it, it's going to take, and it, it has, you know, we're, we're past 20 years since this happened, and it's going to take, uh, I mean, the, the metaphor is to, it'll take a village, but I mean, it, it's going to take every concerted effort ever to get the Wallace family, the Poole family, all of these people, hopefully by extension, the Shakur family, um, the justice that they are so overdue. But what the converse that is, and people need to understand that it took a village to cover it up. And so there are a lot of people that are responsible for this. In the last interview I did with Randall, he made a point to say, he said, listen, I felt inside of my book, there are at least 10 things that are front page L.A. Times stories. And L.A. Times didn't write one article about Randall's book to this day. I think in the people that have really looked into this case, you know, Randall and you, Jess, myself, there always, I think, has been a, a respect and honor as it relates to Miss Wallace. And I know that the way that you approached, even though you didn't have any life rights deal with the Wallace family, but you made it a point and a process to go and speak to Miss Wallace and go and speak to, I believe it's, it's Wayne Barrow about this movie. Can you talk a little bit about why that was important for you and where you ended up as it relates to the relationship with the Wallace family and this movie? Because this wasn't a movie, as I've referenced, that we were building from the ground. From a rights perspective, we were partnered with a particular company, individual um, they felt due to public domain and other rights that, you know, and there's always financial concerns. That's, that's really what, you know, everything's about price and money um, because people are trying to make money. Um, but that's never how I approach any of this. Probably should. I'd be a lot well, well off. But, no, for me, my heart was in trying to honor these two young men who we, who we lost way too young and the legacy they left behind and, and, and pay homage to them and, and honor their families. So in doing so, I felt, here's that word again, a responsibility to make sure that we were in a thousand percent with the Wallace family, Wallace estate and the Tupac family, you know, the Shakur family and the Shakur estate. It's funny, you would think to get them on board, it would be a lot easier than I ever imagined. And I don't mean from the perspective of just sitting and talking to them, I mean just reaching them. It took me an immense long time to reach them. I will tell you, Russell Poole's supervisor, who was uh, Sergio Robledo, who was our technical advisor on the case, he was also the lead detective for Perry Sanders, who was Valletta's attorney um, in a civil case against the Los Angeles city. He was instrumental in opening doors to making this movie and allowing us to, quote unquote, research the case or re-research the case. Sadly, Sergio has passed, so I'm a little more comfortable discussing things. Sergio was heavily helpful, not only in all those aspects, but when I explained to him, and he really was supportive, that I didn't want to you know, do any of this without the support of Valletta, the family, Wayne, et cetera. Uh, we hired a private investigator and got Valletta's number. And I remember how nervous I was. I cold called her and she picked up and she was the sweetest woman on the planet. And I was immensely sensitive to her loss, to the fact that the mother in particular that never goes away and explained to her in great depth in our first call who I was why I was making the movie, how much Christopher in particular was an inspiration and influence on me. We really connected. It was a beautiful call. Ultimately, we built a real friendship, something that I'm really honored to have. To this day, I check in on her. She was the one that actually introduced me to Wayne Barrow. Wayne really handled everything. It was just really special. And then Jess, myself, and Sergio flew to New York City, and we sat with Valletta and Wayne, and we really laid out more specifically 
what we wanted their involvement to be. Now, months prior, I had asked Valletta to um, be in the film and play herself because I felt there was an element to the story of us all being children of mothers. In this particular instance with Tupac and Big, you know, sons of mothers. I felt to, to ground the truth and the reality and the integrity in which we were striving for, that it would be important to continue that. And who better to play his mother than his mother? <laughs> you know, she told me no way a hundred times and told me Angela Bassett should play her because it had been done before. And, you know, you, you take these answers at face value, but I have also learned a never quit attitude. You know, we stayed the course. And when we sat in front of Valletta with Wayne, we expressed to her really what we wanted it to be. And uh, we were able to successfully get Valletta to agree to play herself in the movie. It's not something I've spoken about publicly because, you know, I want people just to sort of have that as an Easter egg in the film. But uh, in light of, you know, being on the film and giving me the book and producing it, we're sharing that here today. Uh, I also don't think I've said publicly that uh, we actually hired <laughs> a private detective to get her number. But, um, you know, you do what you have to do in this world sometimes. And, uh you know, I think it was for the for the good, so that was I can't regret that. Now the film is going to come out March ninth, twenty twenty one. Is that correct? No, it's 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 going to come out in March theatrically. Uh, we're waiting on the theatrical date for that. Uh, I think about six hundred screens, right? Jeff? Uh, yeah, the tentative. So it's tentatively slated to come out theatrical on March nineteenth, and then on VOD on April ninth. The three of us know that this has been a sort of a a weird and bizarre journey where you would think you have a completed film that has Forrest Whitaker in it and Johnny Depp in it that has been done for, am I going to say, roughly almost two years now? And can can you talk a little bit about what happened with the distribution of this film and your overall thought process on even even being able to say here today now that the film is going to come out is a is a major accomplishment with what you've gone through. So can you talk a little bit about what happened with the distribution of City of Lies? I personally tend to lose perspective because I focus so much on all the granular pieces, all of the granular details add up to the whole. Um, but we were. I think in the most ideal situation ever with Open Road and Tom Ortenberg. Uh, Open Road had had tremendous success with Spotlight. Um, it had also had success at Lions with Crash and won Academy Awards with both films. I felt that with the gravitas and nature of this film that we felt was really special we were making, we couldn't be in better hands. Unfortunately, you know, as I said earlier, this is a business. It's about making money. Open Road was struggling financially. And uh, their large partner, or majority partner, was AMC. And AMC wanted to get out and sell the company. So while our movie was being finished, Open Road was actually um, looking to sell. They found a buyer. The buyer was Donald Tang, and he turned that movie, that company, excuse me, into Global Road, which was a marriage of, I think, I Am Global and Open Road. I think he had purchased both companies and put them together. But to actually distribute movies and market them and to get them out, because I sort of alluded to earlier, that's equally as important as the movie itself. Uh, He had raised hundreds of millions of dollars, which, to my understanding, he was unsuccessful in doing. And Global Road thereby declared bankruptcy. Um, And our movie, um, just because I know too much, we weren't actually caught in the bankruptcy, but due to the domestic contracts from Miramax and Open Road, our original domestic distributors, and the fact that the bank loan had not been paid, we were a party to it legally, that's the term. And we were stuck. And Bank Lumi uh, has had our movie for quite some time. Also, I, I have to say, I think you sort of alluded to it, but you didn't hit the nail on the head, so I'll just do it. This was a movie that when I endeavored to make it, my friends in the police force, especially in L.A., urged me not to make it, said that stuff was still you know, ripe in the police department and people's feelings and emotions were raw and there were many people involved in the cover-up, who were still you know, active police officers and active in government. So they were very concerned for you know, my safety, these other things. Um, they're just an opinion. Some of my friends as well, all these people should remain and will remain nameless. Uh, some from you know, poor 
impoverished neighborhoods of L.A. who grew up around this sort of type of stuff felt that you don't want to mess with these things as well. You know, I I felt such an honor and responsibility to tell the story that I tried not to overthink these things and just make it about a a movie and telling the truth. And that where my heart, you know, sort sort of stayed with that. But my point in bringing that up was a lot of people did not want to touch this subject matter. And due to the fact that Bank Loom was not, you know, in the film business, they didn't know how to handle that. And I think it made the ultimate sale of this movie tremendously tricky. This is a subject matter that I think Michael Bennett said it best from the Seahawks. Um, you know, there's an amazing quote uh, that says he stated, which just blew my mind. He said, uh, Tom, Brady's, Tom Brady's jersey was found, but we still don't know who killed Tupac and Biggie. When I, when I heard him say that publicly and that, that, that became viral, I thought that just summed everything up. And I think that just sums up large in part outside of the you know, bankruptcy and all this other craziness, like why this movie has never seen the light of day. Like nobody has wanted this movie out. And this movie's for the people. So eventually I think hopefully we're serving the people, as Jess eloquently said, and you know, we're getting the movie out. The, the next question I have is, is in the making of the movie, you spoke about Sergio Robledo, someone we all loved and and, and dearly missed. But in having Sergio and, and sort of, for lack of a better term, peeling the curtain away from a lot of the evidence that exists, a lot of the information that exists, a lot of stuff that no one has seen, what... You had a cursory knowledge. You read the book. You, you kind of knew that. But was there a part of the experience when you saw some of this stuff? Were you surprised? Were, were you blown away? What was your visceral reaction to all of the information and evidence exists as it relates to LAPD's involvement? I'm assuming Jess knew less than me, but I could be wrong. So I'm going to let her take it because I think her reaction will be much more exciting for anyone listening, and then I'll follow up. I knew next nothing going into this. Obviously, I knew who the the I knew who Biggie and Pop were. I knew that there was conspiracy theories around both of their deaths, and I knew that people had connected them not only because of whatever connections they made in life, but their proximity of their deaths you know, being six months apart and rumors that that flew at the time as to whether or not they were connected, retaliatory, whatever, whatever you want to call them. And that, uh, and also having grown up in LA, I was, I was aware of um, the time that it happened. But um, beyond that, I, I really knew nothing. I didn't know any of the players' names. I didn't, I hadn't seen any of the documentaries that had come out before us or any of those sort of things. And um I think actually the, the, the light bulb monument for me was something we, it's a piece of material that we recreated in the movie. So I'm not going to go into it. Um, but we, it was a deposition by a individual named Psycho Mike. And I watched the deposition, which has never been made public and sincerity and truth and honesty in what this man was saying and how everything played out with him. Everyone deserves to be connected. That's why Cox offers a range of high-speed internet plans that fit any budget. Stream, chat, and stay connected at an incredible price. It's fast, reliable internet for everyone. You're probably thinking, wait, what? But yeah, it's true. Learn more at cox.com ACP. Non-transferable one per household. Application and eligibility decisions are made by the FCC. Other restrictions apply. It, it just spoke to the extent of the knowledge that people had and the lengths they had to go to to cover it up. And that was really for me when things shifted and I knew that we had to tell the story, we had to tell it truthfully, and we had to use the pieces at our disposal. Thankfully for Sergio, he opened us up to these things and allowed us in in a way that we would have never gotten in. And um, explosive would be the word when we watched many of the depositions, the legal filings, the police detective work, the old LAPD files, the redacted files. Um, astonishing. I mean, just still to this day, unimaginable to me. In your conversations with Sergio, with people like Perry Sanders, 
with Valletta, do you sense that there's any hope there, or is this, or is the machine of all of this just at this point literally churned everyone around and set everyone out, and and it's it seems like it's insurmountable. Well, I always try to see the positive things and always try to, you know, be hopeful. Personally, very resilient. Um, but I would say that I think that our especially because Jess and I were just like on the ground contacting everyone originally, there was a hopefulness and an excitement that making a movie with Johnny Depp and Forrest Whitaker brought to everyone. And um, that was pervasive and very exciting through all of these individuals. And people, that's why I think Valletta and Wayne and Curry and Randall, everybody really welcomed us. And, and we, we created a bit of a small family here, um, Johnny and Forrest included. Um, but... I'd say when you make this movie and you make the sacrifices we all made. Everyone deserves to feel connected. That's why Cox has high-speed internet to fit any budget. For real. Learn more at cox.com ACP. Non-transferable one per household. Application and eligibility decisions are made by the FCC. Other restrictions apply. And then it gets lost to never come out. I would say this is probably one of those times where even when I was expressing to Randall recently that the movie's going to come out, he like didn't even believe me. <laughs> he didn't even think that it was real. Um, yeah. So I do think that this is actually the time where I, I, I'm sensing and feeling with people that that hope is gone. Um, maybe not all the way, but much more than any time before in this process. Um, and and that's sad. And and even myself, I'm very jaded to the impact that the movie will have. Um, I had a very high expectation for this film and how it would reach the public and you know the people and how the word would spread. And um, not not built off my own ego, built off the facts and the truth, and and just being a vessel um, as a collective group for the three of us to get this out there. And as I said, the honor and responsibility and. Um, there's just a lot of lot of pieces in the cogs of the wheel. Um, you know, you're you're just unfortunately deeply reliant in the system on many other pieces, and you, you learn quickly that people don't share your same passion, sentiment, vigor. Um, they have their own agenda, and typically that agenda is, you know, what's the fastest way to get to the line? How can we cut as many quarters as we can because that's the cheapest and we can make money? I don't really care about the things that we're talking about here, so it's sad. And that's why I think people lose hope. The process on the film has been disheartening and obviously nowhere near um, the perseverance it's taken for the many players of names we've mentioned on here, from Valletta Wallace to Wayne to Perry Sanders to on and on down to Sergio and, and every person, the pool family who have continued to fight um, for the legacy and truth that the loved ones that they had were fighting for during their lifetime. Um, that said, just to simply have all of those people still participating in something to tell the truth 20 years later, after more than 20 years now, after the adversity they've faced, I think speaks to the hope that still it is. And um, a lot has changed. A lot has changed even from two years ago when we were going to have this movie come out. There's been um, a, a huge national reckoning for, for many people in, in many different ways. So the idea behind making this film and continuing to have hope that it may change something has to do with the fact that um, a lot of times people can't hear something until they're ready to listen. And we can't control when people are ready to listen. All we can do is fight tooth and nail every day to make sure that the movie gets out. And then hopefully people will be ready to listen. Looking towards the release in, in March and April, are you guys talking about, you know, how do you get a renewed interest in this? How do you get some renewed eyeballs on this movie that grabs people's attentions? Is, is that something that you guys are working on a day-to-day -day basis or uh, are distributors, you know, helping as it relates to that? Where do you guys land on that in the, the vicious news cycle and content consumption cycle that we live in what's the hope now with with now the end in sight that this movie is going to come out 
I, I think that also speaks a little bit to what I was saying as far as like the factors beyond your control um, in the sense that we don't ultimately control the temperature of the marketplace or the competition in which we're going to step in and, and push the go out button to, to get this movie actually the day it is or isn't released. To speak sort of granularly just about what you're asking, yes, our, the distributor and the marketing team are aggressively putting together not only the materials, but the way in which they're going to roll it out. They are, we're, we're overjoyed to be partnered with them and, and how excited they are to make sure that we get eyeballs on this and to compete in just sort of the like brass tacks way you're talking about. The secondary thing that's, you know, the market factors beyond our control that we're, um, I guess, hopeful that we landed here because we could have landed in any situation. And obviously COVID in many ways has not been kind to the theatrical film business, but it has been kind to the overall content business and creating conversations around content. So to now be positioned um, way past when we thought we were going to do it and how we had a specific idea what this may look like, that idea has shifted massively. However, um, there is a hole in, there was no production for a while and there are not as many films coming out. I mean, I think Apple just reported their, their highest viewership because of a movie that came out last weekend. So to have a theatrical film of this caliber, which I'm speaking to Brad's talents, Johnny's talents, Forrest's talents, um, the music from, from Biggie and Pac and, and all those talents is what I'm speaking to as far as caliber competing in a marketplace that is hungry for content that speaks to them and has a story and that is important in that regard where uh, we're hoping to get the eyeballs and conversation that we've always wanted for it. Everyone deserves to be connected. That's why Cox offers a range of high-speed internet plans that fit any budget. Stream, chat, and stay connected at an incredible price. It's fast, reliable internet for everyone. You're probably thinking, wait, what? But yeah, it's true. Learn more at cox.com ACP. Non-transferable one per household. Application and eligibility decisions are made by the FCC. Other restrictions apply.